and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. This season, we're talking about nationalism, and I wanted to tackle it from a global perspective. In other words, to look at how different societies all over the world have developed their own sense of identity and sort of what types of things they've organized uh, that sense of identity around. And I'm aware that I've been talking a lot about the Roman Empire. Now, my intention with the last episode was sort of to get us caught up to the Middle Ages so that I could then talk about other parts of the world where other things are actually happening. Uh, but as I was starting to prepare this week's episode, I realized that if I wanted to get us to the Middle Ages, right, what most people would think of as the Middle Ages, I couldn't just stop with the fall of the Roman Empire. There's some stuff that happens in between in the Mediterranean that is really important. Uh, so we're going to be talking about that before we move on to other parts of the world and look at how those parts of the world are organizing themselves. And I wanted to look at a few things in particular. One is the formation of a French state, not necessarily what we would think of as France today, these were collections of small kingdoms for the most part. It would take some time before you have, you know, these larger, fully organized states in Western Europe again. But that's something that starts to happen. At least the formation of this French identity starts to happen. Uh, I wanted to talk about the formation of the Holy Roman Empire, which is confusingly and badly named... Right, if you're thinking in modern terms, uh, it would be more accurate to think of Germany, Austria, Hungary, that area of Central and Eastern Europe. Then, of course, we have to look at what happens with the rest of the Mediterranean, right? What is going on in the Eastern Roman Empire? Uh, that's still a huge amount of territory. It stretches from the Balkans down through Egypt. That's a huge area. There's a lot of people who live there, and there are things happening there, too. And then, of course, before we get to the Middle Ages, there is the birth of the third of the great monotheistic uh, Abrahamic faiths, right? Uh, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam... And it is at this time, between the fall of the Roman Empire and the Middle Ages, that Islam first appears. And that has a major impact on the Mediterranean world as well, as we'll see. Uh, and it, it ends up being that half of the Mediterranean world becomes uh, Islamicized. So it's important to talk about how that started. Um, and I'm well aware that talking about these things might be controversial, but if you're talking about any aspect of history, it's controversial. 
that's in some ways what makes it fun. Uh, and while I'm not afraid of controversy, I do want to be accurate. So a little bit of housekeeping. In the last episode, I referred to the uh, Numidians, and I referred to them as uh, modern, what we would call uh, Ethiopians today. Uh, the Numidians were a North African people from the Punic era. Uh, what I meant to say was the Nubians. The Nubians had an empire in what we would call Ethiopia today, and they were trading partners with the Romans. Uh, that's just what happens when you make a digression and start speaking off the cuff. You say Numidians when you meant to say Nubians. At any rate, as things stand, you can expect two more episodes on the Mediterranean. That's this episode plus one more. And then we'll move on to other parts of the world for a while until we're you know, sort of caught up to the Middle Ages. Not quite sure where we're going to go yet. Maybe Persia. We'll see. But for now, in the Mediterranean, we're looking at this world we left at the end of the last episode, where the Roman Empire has fallen apart. It has, in many ways, delegated itself out of existence, right? We saw a lot of land being given to these people that the Romans called barbarians, right? And I should note, by the way, that when the Romans, or earlier the Greeks, when they said barbarian, all they meant was someone from outside our culture. Uh, it didn't necessarily have uh, a pejorative connotation. It might today, and, and in, in many ways at the time it did, but it, it didn't necessarily inherently uh, have a pejorative connotation. Uh, regardless, these barbarian kingdoms now control most of that territory, right? You have the Vandals in North Africa. You have the Visigoths in uh, modern-day Spain and parts of modern-day France. You have the Franks in modern-day France. You have... The Ostrogoths now moving into Italy. Uh, you have the Lombards. You have a whole bunch of other tribes. It's a complicated mess. And even as all of this delegation of the empire has happened, right, that economic engine, that trade across the Mediterranean Sea is deteriorated. And what that means is that these cities and towns that just a couple of generations before might have been very cosmopolitan places are suddenly a lot more insular, right? When you don't have that trade moving goods and money around, it's also not moving people around in the same way with the same kind of regularity. And what this means is that instead of a sort of unified Mediterranean culture, you're seeing people look to local ties and uh, native cultural ties. 
And this is happening across what used to be the Western Empire, right, from Great Britain in the north all the way down to Morocco in the south. Uh, and we should remember, right, the Eastern Empire remains intact. It's still there. But for now, let's look at one particular area of the Western Empire that is starting to develop its own identity. And that area is modern-day France, what they still called Gaul at the time. Now, at this time, Gaul is just a geographic region, right? There is no unified kingdom of France or anything like that. That hasn't happened yet. Instead, there are a bunch of small kingdoms that are made up of these various barbarian tribes that have migrated into what used to be the empire. And in one of these kingdoms, in the year 466, a prince was born by the name of Clovis. Now, Clovis was the son of a Frankish king and a Thuringian princess. The Thuringians just... Another one of these barbarian groups, right? And not much is known about his early life, right? These people didn't leave written records in any significant amount, right? And that's intriguing, right? You wouldn't think about that with a later historical figure, right? I mean, imagine if we knew nothing about the life and early upbringing of Louis the Fourteenth, and he just sort of appears uh, as a teenager as the King of France. We would think that was ridiculous, right? How do we not know any details about this important man? But that's why they call, or used to call anyway, this period of time, the Dark Ages. Right? Now, modern historians don't like that term, and I don't like it either because it's not entirely accurate. Right? It sounds like nothing was happening, and clearly things were happening, but we are a little bit short on sources. Right, For most of the Roman era, we have lots and lots of sources and records of what's going on, and in the Dark Ages, you sort of have to take what's given to you. And for Clovis... Our main source is a man named Gregory of Tours. Uh, Gregory of Tours uh, was a Gallo-Roman bishop, and he lived about a century later in the mid-500s, but he wrote some extensive histories of this time period, and he is the person who has told us about Clovis. Uh, and where he picks up Clovis as a young man He's a pagan, and he grew up in an interesting time, right? He was born in 466, and if you remember, the Western Roman Empire didn't fall until 476, right? In other words, for the first 10 years of his life, there was a Western Roman Empire, at least in theory, now, Clovis himself obviously wouldn't remember any time when there was actual Roman rule in Gaul, but he would have grown up with some old-timers who did remember those times, right? 
wasn't that long ago. Right? If you if you were 60 years old, you were old enough to remember when Alaric and his Goths sacked Rome, right? That wasn't that long ago. And where Gregory of Tours begins his story, Clovis is 20 years old, right? It's the year 486. And he has recently taken rulership of his kingdom, right? His, his father just died. And at this time, there is still a rump Roman state in Soissons. That's an area in northwestern France. This isn't run by the emperor, right? There is no emperor in the West anymore. But it's run by some local Roman officials who have authority in the area, and it's, it's as if a fragment of the Roman Empire has still survived here, and Clovis wants to take it. So he gets together with a couple of other Frankish kings, right? Again, remember, these are small kingdoms. Clovis himself only leads, you know, a few thousand men to this battle. That is what his tiny kingdom can muster at this point. Uh, but he gets together with a couple of other Frankish kings, and they march on Soissons. Now, the Roman commander, a man named Siagrius, agrees to a battle, and the Franks win a crushing victory. This is another disappointment of dealing with the Dark Ages because we don't know exactly how they won. They're are no records of the actual battle and how it was fought. All we know is that Clovis and his Franks crushed the Romans. And Siagrius, this Roman commander, flees to the nearby Visigothic kingdom and uh, asks for sanctuary from their king, Alaric II. Clovis follows close on his heels and demands that Alaric II turn him over. And Gregory of Tours says something a little amusing at this point. He says that the Goths are naturally cowardly and that Alaric complies because he's sort of following his cowardly Gothic nature. And Gregory does not really explain what this means. Why are they cowardly? I mean... Just a generation ago, the Goths were these terrifying barbarians crashing into the civilized world, and now they're like these soft, squishy people you can kind of push around? We don't know exactly what happened. It would seem to me that they in some way became Romanized or maybe just became soft by living in this a civilized world instead of in a world where you had to fight constantly. But whatever the reason, apparently they're just not up to fighting the Franks. Uh, Alaric II hands over Siagrius, this Roman commander, uh, and Clovis executes Siagrius. And Clovis and his allies are then free to loot the surrounding area. Loot, they do. They gather pretty much everything of value from this Roman enclave. And as is their custom, they divide the loot up amongst themselves. So uh, Gregory of Tours is not super, super specific about how this is done, 
But if you look at how other barbarian tribes often handled this kind of situation, the chiefs would each get a certain share, and then you know their underlings would each get a smaller share, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the loot is divided. And uh, at this point, a local bishop uh, sends a messenger to ask the Franks to return a particular vase. Again, it's not clear what kind of vase this is. Uh, it doesn't seem to be something that would be used for the Eucharist or in a Mass. It seems like it's a little bit larger than that. But whatever it is, it is of uh, religious importance to the mostly Christian people in the area. Uh, and as it so happens, this vase was part of Clovis's share. And what Clovis does is he asks his men if the vase can come out of the general share of the loot instead of his personal share, right? He's happy to give it back to this bishop because he came here to loot. He's not here to enrage the entire local population, right? Uh, but he still wants to get his share of the loot, so he wants the vase to just sort of go back into the general pot and then go back to the church, and all of his chieftains are okay with this, except for one. And this one particular chief smashes the vase and then tells Clovis that he will get nothing more than his share. And this is where Gregory of Tours gets really delightful. See, he doesn't write a lot about battles and tactics. That's not really his jive. But he does talk a lot about character, right? And of course, because he's a bishop, he's also concerned a lot with religion. But here he takes a minute to illustrate the kind of person that this young Clovis is. And remember, Clovis is only, you know, at this point, 20, 21 years old, right? He's, he's a young man still. Uh, and he's a little bit vengeful. He remembers this warrior who smashed this vase. And by the way, not only, you know, stood up to him in front of the other Franks, but also embarrassed him in front of this bishop. And Gregory of Tours tells us that a full year later, Clovis is reviewing his troops and, quote, When he was reviewing them all carefully, he came to the man who struck the vase and said to him, No one has brought armor so carelessly kept as you, for neither your spear nor sword nor axe is in serviceable condition. And seizing his axe, cast it to the earth. And when the other had bent over somewhat to pick it up, the king raised his hands and drove his own axe into the man's head. This, said he, is what you did at Soissons to the vase. Think about that. On the one hand, it's incredibly brutal. On the other hand, it's almost like a high school prank, right? Oh, your shoe's untied. Ha! Whacked you on the head. Except, you know, in this case, he hits the guy on the head with an axe and kills him. And... Clovis is also sure to take revenge on allies who do not live up to their word. There's another Frankish king named Chararic, 
who had come to Soissons to help fight the Romans. And instead, when the battle was met, Gregory of Tours tells us that Chararic stood at a distance. In other words, he was just kind of sitting there waiting to see how the battle would play out so he could then claim that he was there to support the victor. So Clovis has him and his son and heir thrown into a monastery. And when he hears that the son is planning to escape, he sends some men to kill both the father and the son. Then he takes over their kingdom. So now, all of a sudden, this relatively young man, right, still not 25 years old yet, controls a significant portion of modern-day France, right? He controls his original territory. He controls the region of Soissons. And he controls Chararic's kingdom. But that is not enough for Clovis. He wants to unite all of Gaul. And to do this, he has to defeat a bunch of petty kingdoms, which are Gallo-Roman, Gothic, Frankish. They're multi-ethnic, and there are many of them, but almost all of them are Christian, right? Now, the Arian heresy, this dogmatic dispute within the Christian church, is still in full force. So some of those barbarians are Arians, and some of them are Catholics, but almost all of them are Christian. So to placate this Christian majority, Clovis takes a wife named Clotilda. Uh, this woman is a Nicene Christian, and she's his second wife. Right, remember, these pagans are still into polygamy, and as we'll see in the future, uh, even some of the Christianized barbarians still are into polygamy for at least a few generations after they're Christianized. Uh, nonetheless, even though Clotilda is Clovis's second wife, it seems like she pretty quickly becomes his favorite, his main wife, so to speak. And what we see in Gregory of Tours is this adorable picture of a couple that almost jumps off the page. It's so relatable. And it's relatable because it's the sort of thing we can picture happening in any of our friends' relationships, right? Clotilda is constantly bugging Clovis to convert to Christianity. And we've seen this guy already. We know a thing or two about him. He's a warrior. He's a tough guy. You embarrass him over a vase, he'll remember it, and a year later he'll bash your head in. But he will tolerate Clotilda's uh, nagging, for lack of a better word, to no end, to the extent that, despite the fact that he himself is a pagan, he has no problem with her baptizing uh, his first son. And he even says beforehand 
that this baptism is dangerous, it's going to bring uh, the disfavor of the pagan gods, and his son will die. And sure enough, shortly after the baptism, uh, his son does die. But even so, uh, he still lets Clotilda baptize the next son. Uh, and the son gets sick, and Clovis blames it on the baptism, but that son recovers. And from that point on, Clovis seems to at least warm up to this idea of Christianity, right? Uh, again, if he converts, it could be a good thing politically, right? Most of his subjects are Christians, it will certainly be easier to maintain their loyalty and run his kingdom if he himself is a Christian. So from this point on, at least from what Gregory of Tours tells us, the question isn't really, will Clovis convert or won't he? But will he convert to Arian Christianity or will he convert to Nicene Christianity? Now, to us modern people, this might seem like an irrelevant distinction, right? Dude, the guy's a barbarian king, and he's becoming a Christian. Why do you care what he believes about the relationship between God the Father and God the Son? I mean, it's kind of an obscure theological debate, but to the people of this time, this was still very important. And it's something that both Clovis's friends and his enemies were watching closely. And by five years later, in 496, Clovis controls most of Gaul. And he's still only 30 years old. But at this time, he has to go on the defensive. Because as so often happens during this time period, more barbarians invade. And this time, it is a group of barbarians from Germania called the Alamanni. Now, if that word tickles some neurons, it may be because you've studied French. If you've studied French, you know that the French word for the country of Germany is Alamant, which is not too far off from Alamanni, right? It's named after this tribe. That is a long cultural memory, right? Nobody talks about the Roman Empire anymore, at least in reference to a modern nation-state, right? If the president of the United States is going to negotiate with the president of Italy over some trade deal, he's not negotiating with the president of the Roman Empire. But if you're French and your president is negotiating with the German chancellor, they're negotiating with the chancellor of Alemann, the Alemanni. And when these Alemanni invade, again, we are hamstrung because our source is Gregory of Tours. He does not really care about strategy or tactics or supply lines, or any of the military stuff. Like, you know, you read the diaries of Julius Caesar, 
and you hear everything a military historian wants to know. You read Gregory of Tours, you don't hear that. But from what it seems, it seems like the Alamanni are invading in large numbers. To respond, the Franks are able to muster about 6,000 men. To put this in perspective, a few hundred years ago, when the Romans and the Germanic tribes clashed in the Battle of the Tudorberg Forest, there were tens of thousands of men on each side. Now Clovis has to defend Gaul with 6,000 men. Now, part of that is because of this castle warfare system we talked about in the last episode, right? Not all of his men are in the field. Some of them are in the castles. Not all of his money is being spent on men, right? Some of it is being spent on castles and fortresses and things other than human bodies stuffed into armor and given weapons, right? But nonetheless, to fight these Alamanni, that's what Clovis has, 6,000 men. And once again, Gregory of Tours tells us absolutely nothing about the details of the battle. We don't know how many people were on each side. We don't know how they formed up. We don't know what the weather was. We know nothing. But what we do know is what happened in terms of religion. Now, this story is famous, right? It comes to us directly from Gregory of Tours, and it's one you'll hear in any history of Clovis or indeed any well-written history of France, right? Because this is the moment where the Frankish people, at least, find their identity, and they find it through this, this proxy, through this one leader, Clovis, and his road to Damascus moment in the middle of a battlefield. And here's what Gregory of Tours says. It came about that as the two armies were fighting fiercely, there was much slaughter, and Clovis's army began to be in danger of destruction. He saw it and raised his eyes to heaven, and with remorse in his heart he burst into tears and cried, Jesus Christ, whom Clotilda asserts to be the Son of the living God, who art said to give aid to those in distress and to bestow victory on those who hope in thee, I beseech the glory of thy aid, with the vow that if thou wilt grant me victory over these enemies, and I shall know that power which she says that people dedicated in thy name have had from thee, I will believe in thee, and be baptized in thy name. For I have invoked my own gods, but, as I find, they have withdrawn from aiding me, and therefore I believe that they possess no power, since they do not help those who obey them. I now call upon thee. I desire to believe thee only. Let me be rescued from my adversaries. And when he said thus, the Alamanni turned their backs and began to disperse in flight. And when they saw that their king was killed, they submitted to the dominion of Clovis, saying, Let not the people perish further, we pray, 
We are yours now. And he stopped the fighting, and after encouraging his men, retired in peace and told the queen how he had merit to win the victory by calling on the name of Christ. Now, is this story 100% true? I will leave that to theologians and people who are experts in the supernatural, but I will say that this is neither the first nor the last time in history that someone has claimed divine intervention to win a battle. We'll actually see another example next week. But regardless of whether it was divine intervention or whether the sun got in the enemy's eyes or whether the actual story happened completely differently from how Gregory of Tours tells us, Clovis nonetheless converts to Christianity. And the flavor of Christianity he chooses is Nicene Christianity, right? Catholicism. That almost puts the nail in the coffin of the Arian heresy. And we call it a heresy today, but if Clovis had become an Arian, it's quite possible that things may have worked out the other way round, uh, that the Arians may have ultimately had their say. Either way, Clovis spends the next decade, his 30s, uniting most of Gaul. And he doesn't always do it militarily. Sometimes Clovis uses diplomacy to make tributaries. Right? He does this with the Burgundians, people in what would be today roughly southern Belgium, that general region. He does that in 501, convinces them to pay him tribute. He also incorporates the region of Armorica, that's modern-day Brittany, right? The western coast of France, the part closest to Britain. Uh, he incorporates that via diplomacy as well. He arranges a royal marriage. At age 41, in the year 507, Clovis decides to invade the Visigoths. Right, Most of their territory is in Hispania, but there are some Visigothic kingdoms in southern and southwestern Gaul. And... It's interesting because Gregory of Tours justifies this attack by saying that this is because the Visigoths are Arians. One must question this. Is this just a convenient excuse for Clovis to continue conquering? Or is he somehow this crazy, devout Catholic who wants to go kill all the Arians? Right? We don't really know. Regardless, there are a number of stories that take place during this invasion that tell about miracles. Again, all of this coming from Gregory of Tours. We have to wonder how much of this was made up after the fact, how much of this is folk legend. Uh, perhaps the most famous legend is uh, when Clovis, uh, some of his men, steal 
from some farmers. Right, they steal a bunch of hay, presumably to feed their horses, but Clovis has ordered that these farmers not be harmed. And he has the thieves executed, and then he prays to God for guidance. He says to give him a sign of whether he should continue with his invasion or whether he should stop. And later that day, when some of his men come up to a monastery, one of the monks just spontaneously starts singing that Clovis will conquer his enemies. Again, it is questionable whether this is entirely factual, but the story does seem to be believed by many of the people who were present at the time. And Clovis is ultimately victorious. He subdues the Visigoths, takes all of their possessions within Gaul, and again, we know hardly anything about the military details, because Gregory of Tours doesn't tell us. Uh, what he does tell us is that in the final battle, Alaric II and the Goths fled, quote, as was their custom, again, leaving us to kind of scratch our heads and wonder why these Goths, who were so intimidating a couple generations ago, are now prone to fleeing. But there you have it. And Clovis does not pursue those conquests into Hispania. And you got to remember, there is a mountain range there, the Pyrenees, right between France and Spain. That is an intimidating barrier to any army. And Clovis decides to let that be the southern border of his kingdom and spends the rest of his time reuniting the Franks. And to do this, he does have to engage in some warfare against his own family. Uh, he has to go to war against a man named Ragnikar, his own cousin, and defeats him. And by 509 AD, right, just a few years later, at the age of 43, Clovis controls almost all of modern-day France, Belgium, and western Germany. Unfortunately, he is unable to actually rule that area for very long. He dies of uncertain causes in an uncertain year, either 511 or 513, we think. Again, that's why they call this the Dark Ages. You'd think we'd know a few more details about such an incredibly important person, but we don't. Now, what we do know is that Clovis did what the Romans ultimately could not as their empire collapsed, and that is that he unified Gaul again. No one had done that since Julius Caesar. And he did it under Frankish rule, right? He built a Christian and Frankish identity for that area that in many ways remains to this day. Now, political unity did not always remain, right? When Clovis dies, he divides his empire among his four sons, and all four of them rule separate kingdoms, and then they leave their kingdoms divided to other children, and this Frankish realm fragments. 
But nonetheless, the the identity of all these people remains, right? They they might have different kings. They might even go to war with each other from time to time, but they're all French. And that particular thing, the idea of what it is to be French, is new. Which is why, even though Clovis was never, quote-unquote, the king of France, he's often recognized as the first king of what would one day become France. And the importance of this man was recognized almost immediately. He received a elaborate burial in the Abbey of St. Genevieve in Paris, and his body remained there until the 1700s. Now, at that point, it was relocated to the Basilica of Saint-Denis. If you asked me where I would visit on my hypothetical vacation to Paris, I don't know that I'd visit the Louvre. Don't get me wrong. The artwork, I'm sure, is fantastic. But I don't know if I want to stand in line for four hours for that. Right? The same goes for the Eiffel Tower. I've visited major monuments. Right? I've stood in line for three hours on the narrow, steep, spiral stairwell in the baking-hot interior of the Statue of Liberty only to get to the top and realize that I'm looking out and I'm not seeing the view because I am inside the most iconic part of that view, right? Eiffel Tower, not for me. But on my hypothetical Paris vacation, I would sure like to visit the Basilica of Saint-Denis. I would like to see the tomb of this great man. That's something even worth standing in line for. Now, as I said, what would one day become France does not remain politically united, right? It devolves into this series of smaller kingdoms again, but they're all ruled by relatives. And this leads to a period called the Merovingian period. That's very complicated. I'm not even going to pretend that I know what I'm talking about when it comes to that era. Right? Historians who know about that era are all specialists. Right? People dedicate their entire careers to understanding what exactly happened in France over the next few hundred years. But the groundwork was laid, right? This cultural identity was in place. And ultimately, Clovis is often seen as a predecessor to Charlemagne, who we won't be talking about today, right? He lived 200 years later. We'll talk about him then. And Clovis is even recognized as a saint in France today, has been for centuries, pretty much since his death. Now, this isn't an official sainthood from the Catholic Church. I don't know that the Catholic Church 
would officially endorse braining people in the head with axes. But the fact that if you go to France, he is referred to as St. Clovis tells you something about the legacy that this man left in his importance even 1,500 years later. Now, at this point, I'm going to gripe for a second. And I'm going to gripe about the way most of us learn history. For whatever reason, the way we learn history in school, events oftentimes seem completely disconnected. Right? We'll learn the history of one country or one area. And we'll learn the history of another country in another area. Or maybe we'll study world history or Western history or whatever kind of history. But events are not always tied together. And as I paint this picture, I want to point out that here we are 40 years after the end of the last episode. And we've only talked about what's happening in Gaul, right? Modern day France. Well, during those 40 years, the rest of the Mediterranean basin is not just standing still. Right? You've got your Ostrogoths in command of Italy, right? Ever since Odoacer overthrew the last Roman emperor, Italy has pretty much been an Ostrogothic kingdom. You've got the Vandals in North Africa. They're continuing to do very well foreshadowing here they will not continue to do well for much longer but nonetheless if you asked me where in the mediterranean i would want to live around this period it would still be the vandal kingdom in north africa relatively calm place to be and in the east right the eastern empire still has nominal rule now they've sorted out their dynastic issues Right? There are no more civil wars in the East. And technically, right? remember, the Roman Senate delivered the seals of authority of the Roman Emperor to the Eastern Roman Emperor. Now, at this point in history, most people will start to call the Eastern Romans the Byzantines. Right, because the empire is run out of Byzantium, Constantinople. We should keep in mind that these people still thought of themselves as Romans. And in fact, if you read their histories, they will refer to themselves as the Romans. But culturally, most of them speak Greek, not Latin. And they do things a little differently than the Latin cultures, right, the Roman people did. They're a little bit more prone to diplomacy. They're a little bit more prone to paying off an enemy rather than fighting them, right? These are cultural differences. So even though these people still call themselves the Romans, when I refer to them as the Byzantines, that's why, right? They're they're the old corporation under new management. The business plan is different. The philosophy is different. Same name. Still the Roman Empire. But we'll call them the Byzantines. 
And at this point, as I said, they've wound down their wars. They've sorted things out. The Eastern Empire is coherent again. And the Emperor Zeno, the man who received those seals of authority from Rome, dies in 491. Right, This is right as Clovis is beginning to reach the height of his conquests. Right, Emperor Zeno in the east dies. And the Senate appoints a man named Anastasius to replace him. And it's not entirely clear from the histories, but it seems like Anastasius was supposed to be a placeholder. You see this sometimes, both in the Eastern and Western empires, right? When neither side can agree, they'll appoint an older person to be a placeholder, right? And Anastasius was 61, which was older back then than it is now, right? You didn't expect that a 61-year-old ruler was going to live for long. You, you see this happen even today in organizations with the same type of model. Right? You don't see that in a lot of countries. right? If, if you were going to compare any country, any government, organizationally, to the Eastern or Western Roman Empire, nowadays it'd probably be China. right? You've got the assembly, which is sort of a rubber stamp body, but also sort of in charge. And then, essentially, the, the only real authority they have is choosing who is in charge of the whole thing. Right? You saw that similarly in the Catholic Church just a few years ago, right? There's a debate going on between uh, conservative and progressive Catholics. So what do they do? They appoint Benedict, uh, at the time Cardinal Ratzinger, this old man as Pope, right? And the idea is, well, he'll serve for a few years. He'll be a placeholder. And once he's gone, then we can revisit some of these issues. Uh, and in the case of the Catholic Church, appointing Benedict uh, did not serve that purpose, right? He ended up retiring, and today, even with a new pope, he's still alive. Well, you had a similar situation in the Eastern Roman Empire at this time, where Anastasius, right, the 61-year-old man appointed in 491, ends up living 27 more years. And from age 61 to age 88, when he finally passed, Anastasius was probably the most effective emperor that the East had seen in years, right? For one thing, as soon as he takes over, he immediately puts down an internal revolt. These revolts could last for years, and Anastasius puts it down in year one. Then he enjoys 10 years of peace, right? He doesn't start any trouble. He instead focuses on economic reforms, right? He launches anti-corruption measures and tax reforms to improve revenue. Now, part of this is just reforming the bureaucracy. Taxes 
had been coming through several layers of bureaucracy. And as those taxes work through the system, a little bit gets filtered off at each layer. So if you can streamline that process, you get more revenue. Similarly, if you can fire or execute officials who are skimming revenue off the top, you get more money. And what that leads to, according to our sources, is an annual budget surplus of 23 million solidus. Now, I did a little math on this, right? A solidus is a four and a half gram gold coin. And in today's money, for posterity, this is 2020, in 2020 dollars, that 23 million solidus is worth $6 billion. I don't know about you, but personally, I think that a $6 billion budget surplus is pretty good for an ancient country. Uh, in 501, Anastasius gets sucked into another war with the Persians, right? The Romans and the Persians always fighting whether those are the original Romans or the Byzantines, right? Rome 2.0. Either way, that lore lasts five years. But other than that, from 491 to 518, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, I have to keep correcting myself here, it's at peace. And this allows for those economic reforms. Now, Anastasius is not blind to the fact that he's a little bit long in the tooth. And he did not have sons, but he did have three nephews. And there's an apocryphal story. And this apocryphal story is communicated via an anonymous historical fragment, right? It probably never happened, but it's illustrative. And according to the story, Anastasius couldn't decide between his three nephews. So he puts three couches in a room and puts a note under one of them saying, you will be the emperor. And then he has his nephews take seats in the room. Now he thinks that whichever nephew sits on the couch with the message written under it is the one who God has chosen to become the new emperor. But according to this apocryphal story, Two of the nephews sit on the same couch, and none of them sits on the couch with a message under it. So Anastasius prays, and he asks that the first person to enter his room the next morning will be the person who God has chosen as the next emperor. And according to this story, it so happens that that person was Justin, the chief of his guards. And while Anastasius made no official announcement, he nonetheless treated Justin as if he were his heir. And whether you believe this story or not, the rise of Justin to the emperorship is pretty remarkable. See, Justin wasn't just any soldier nor was he a particularly qualified soldier, might I add. No, he was an illiterate soldier. 
He barely spoke Greek. Now, Justin grew up in Illyricum, that region we talked about a few times in the last episode, had been part of the Western Empire. Now, today, is modern Croatia, Dalmatia, that part of the Balkans. And he was a swineherd. This guy was a nobody. And when he was a teenager, some barbarians invaded Illyricum, and like many other people from that region, he fled and sought sanctuary in Constantinople. And Justin, this young refugee, ended up not only entering Constantinople, but becoming a member of the Exubiters. Now, the Exubiters were an elite palace guard for the Byzantine emperor. The guard was founded in the midst of all those civil wars that were recently happening as a way for the emperor to maintain some level of control. Now, as it happens, the Exubiters and their commanders would oftentimes have their own ideas, and many future emperors would actually come from the Exubiters, Justin being the first. Another remarkable thing about Justin is that just like Anastasius, he's old when he becomes the emperor. He's 68 years old. Nonetheless, he's able to consolidate the support of the Senate. He is, by this point, the commander of the Exubiters. He controls the largest military unit in or around Constantinople. So he gets the support of the Senate is officially acclaimed emperor, and then quickly assassinates two of Anastasius's nephews. Right, The third one doesn't really want to rule. The other two do. He kills them. Now, with his rule secure, he does something insightful. He knows that he's illiterate. He knows that he knows a lot about warfare and very little about politics. So he surrounds himself with advisors who are experts. And one of these advisors is his own son, Justinian. Now, Justinian was a little different than his father, right? Justin grew up poor. Justinian had grown up in Constantinople with an education and with all the benefits that Justin had been able to provide for him. And there are some historians who suggest that Justinian himself was really in charge, even while Justin was emperor. But this doesn't really track with some of the things that we see in Justin's reign versus Justinian's. And I'll mention just one. And that's the fact that Justin is known for being extremely pious, right? Now, Justinian is a Christian. right? He is as pious as any Christian during these very pious times. But Justin, the father, is exceptionally pious. He goes to great lengths during the early part of his reign to resolve the Acacian Schism, 
this is another obscure theological disagreement similar to the Arian heresy. But essentially, it was a disagreement between the Patriarch of Constantinople and the Pope. And Justin submits to the judgment of the Pope. And not only that, but forces the Patriarch of Constantinople to publicly submit to the Pope himself on this issue. Uh, in addition, Justin removes Greek goddesses from Byzantine coinage, right? Up until this point, you see pagan religious figures on the obverse sign of the coinage, right? You even see pagan religious figures on modern coinage in buildings, right? I mean, think of the, the blindfolded figure of justice outside of any courthouse, right? That is a pagan figure. But Justin wasn't having any of this. And on his coinage, he replaced all of the Greek goddesses with angels, right? He removed the... He kept the female figures, but he removed the pagan symbolism and instead robed them and made them look angelic and made them, well, Christian. During this time, he also does some diplomatic maneuvers to increase the power of the Byzantine Empire, right? So we've got Anastasius's reforms, making them economically strong, and now Justin is making them diplomatically strong, right? He connects with the emperor of Axum, right? And I corrected myself at the beginning of this episode and talked about how the Nubian Empire was basically modern-day Ethiopia. Well, there's been a change in that part of the world, and now it's the empire of Axum that is basically modern-day Ethiopia, and Justin convinces the emperor of Axum to invade Yemen. Now, Yemen is a modern-day country. It's what the Romans would have called Arabia Felix. It's the outer edge of the Arabian Peninsula, where most of the crops that will grow in Arabia at all are going to grow in that area, Yemen, that coastal area. And not only does the emperor of Axum invade, he successfully seizes that territory from the Sassanid Persian Empire and converts to Nicene Christianity. So by just whispering in this guy's ear, Justin has weakened the Sassanids without fighting a single battle himself, and he now has a friendly Christian neighbor to the south, right? Axum was a trading partner. Now they aren't just a trading partner, but they're Christian allies. And this, I imagine he's thinking, would help him bolster the empire against those still pagan Sassanid Persians to the east. Ultimately, war does break out with the Persians in the year 526. And the war breaks out due to a dispute over an East Georgian kingdom called Iberia. Now, this gets confusing for modern people because Iberia is a peninsula, right? It's part of Europe. 
it's Spain and Portugal, but this Iberia is a country over in the Caucasus, way over in Eastern Europe, and it's a Sassanid client state that wants to rebel, and it does so with Byzantine support. And at first, the war doesn't go well for the Byzantines. They lose a few battles. Just at that point in 527, the Emperor Justin falls ill. And we're not sure what disease he had, but he was very sick. And he was sick enough that he decided to declare Justinian his official heir. Now, we should give him credit for this. Many of the civil wars and troubles we see in the ancient Roman world happened because emperors thought they were going to live forever and they never made a plan for what was going to happen when they died. And Justin did. He declared that his son Justinian would be his official heir. And he ultimately recovers from his illness, but soon after he dies from a battle wound that same year. And in 527... Justinian takes the throne. Justinian is, in many ways, one of the most legendary leaders of all time. And whenever I read about him or think about him, I cannot help but think of Alexander the Great for two reasons, right? The first reason is obvious. Both of them conquered a bunch of land and built an empire and it fell apart right after their death. But in addition to that, both of them also built this empire with an army that had been prepared for them, right? Alexander didn't just build this army and conquer the world by the age of 32. No, when he took the throne... He was taking command of a highly trained, elite military that his father, Philip II of Macedon, had prepared for him. And it's the same thing with Justinian, right? He takes over this empire that has a budget surplus, thanks to Anastasius's reforms, and that thanks to both Anastasius and Justin has been mostly at peace for a few decades now. Right? The military has had time to rebuild. The economy is booming. Justinian also had help in his administration. In 525, right, a couple years ago, two years before he took the throne, he was in a relationship with a former actress named Theodora. And it seems as if the two were really in love because this was a scandal in the old Byzantine court, right? Acting was sort of a frowned upon career. And if you were a man of high station, you certainly didn't go around dating an actress. And this wasn't just... By custom, this was actually by law. There were laws determining which people of which classes could marry. And Justin had actually changed some of those laws and loosened them up 
to allow people of different classes to marry. And this allowed Justinian to marry Theodora when he takes the throne in 527. Again, they've been married for two years, and they seem to be genuinely in love. And Theodora would come to be just as influential as the emperor himself. And this is not to say that Justinian was not an exceptional individual, right? He was. As a matter of fact, many of his contemporaries called him the emperor who never sleeps because he was always working, right? If he wasn't making military plans, he was planning some new civil project. If he wasn't doing that, he was working on a dispute between various nobles. If he wasn't doing that, he was sitting up late in his office writing letters, right? He was always working. And one of the things he does first before he really seriously goes to war with anybody, is he revises Roman law. Now, this is not so much of a revision as, as, as a rewriting, but what he comes up with is a body of work called the Corpus Juris Civilis, or Body of Civil Law, which is often just called the Code of Justinian. Uh, he published it in three volumes from 529 to 533. And as a matter of fact, the Code of Justinian forms the basis of modern civil law in many countries to this day. Uh, that's how long it's been around. But even as Justinian is doing this, the Iberian War is still going on. Right? Justin died in the middle of that. So Justinian dispatches one of his top generals, a man named Belisarius, to take command. Now, Belisarius, like Justin, had served in the Exubiters. As a matter of fact, he had served in the Exubiters, this royal bodyguard, while Justin was emperor. He had been a commander, and during his time, he had innovated some new cavalry tactics, uh and ultimately impressed Justin enough to build an elite household guard of 7,000 cavalry using his new tactics. These cavalry were called the Bucellarii, which means biscuit eaters, and that refers to the superior bread rations they received that were better than the ordinary troops. And the Bucellarii combined all the cavalry tactics that existed in that day. They were heavily armored, and they carried swords so they could act as heavy cavalry. They also carried lances. They could act as shock cavalry or chase down the enemy. And finally, they carried bows. They could be used as missile cavalry to harass the enemy and then retreat if necessary. This is an incredibly versatile military unit, and it ended up forming the core of Belisarius's armies for his entire career. Right? Any battle you find him in, somewhere in that battle you will find this elite household guard he has built. And the Bucellarii get their first test at the Battle of Dara in the year 530. Now, 
Dara is a Roman fortress city located in Mesopotamia. It's on the frontier between the Byzantine Empire and Persia. And in 529, negotiations broke down between Justinian and the Persians over this dispute in the Illyrian War, right? That Persian client state that had tried to break off. And because the negotiations have broken down, the Persians send a force of 40,000 men towards the Roman fortress city of Dara. Now, our source for this battle is Procopius. This is a historian who served in the battle. He was also present at many other events throughout Justinian's reign. So when I quote him over the next portion of our narrative, recognize that this is someone who is physically present. And this is also someone who is no lover of Justinian, Theodora, or Belisarius. If you read his secret histories, you'll see that they're called the secret histories because he intends to publish them only after Justinian's death. He doesn't want to be punished for the nasty things he said about his emperor, his empress, and his emperor's top general. But in large part because of this animosity, modern historians generally consider Procopius to be reliable. Right? If you're writing down all this stuff because you don't like the king and you're not even going to publish it until the king is dead, you're probably accurate. Right? You're probably not trying to oust the king because that would serve no purpose if you're not releasing the information until after he's dead. Regardless, Procopius is the source we have. And he says that in response to this Persian invasion of 40,000 men, Justinian sends Belisarius with a force of 25,000. Belisarius is outmanned, and he knows he's outmanned. But Belisarius will prove over and over again throughout his career that he is an expert not just at maneuver, but at deployment. And for this battle, rather than deploy inside the fortress at Dara, he deploys just outside the walls. He has his infantry dig a ditch. And in this ditch, they leave gaps that are wide enough to allow for a counterattack. Right? So... Enough of the area is covered by the ditch that a mass enemy charge can't just smash into them, but enough is left open that the infantry can still get out and form up and counterattack if needed. Now, behind this ditch, he deploys his least reliable troops, his infantry, which many of them are levies, right? Conscripts, people who've been drafted. So he puts them behind this ditch, and he digs the ditch far enough back that it is within bowshot of the city walls. In other words, these infantry who are behind the ditch are also being supported by arrow fire from behind and above them. Now, to his left, 
Belisarius deploys his more reliable, Hunnic, mercenary cavalry, right? Again, last episode, the Huns or the White Walkers coming into the Roman Empire. Now, all of a sudden, they are mercenary allies fighting for the Byzantines against the Persians. He also has Hunnic cavalry on the right, and then way out to the left... He has some Germanic cavalry. These people are Herulians. That's yet another one of these Germanic tribes. And they're hiding behind an embankment where the enemy can't see them. Uh, The Persian army arrives and deploys facing them. And in many ways, it's similar. The infantry is in the center, whereas the cavalry is out to the flanks. But the Persian army is a little bit different. Instead of relying mostly on sword infantry, it relies on infantry who are armed with spears and arrows. So the spearmen form a phalanx, right? A multi-road formation of spearmen that's very hard to penetrate, very strong defensively. And then inside of that are a whole bunch of archers. And the first day, both armies spend the entire day skirmishing. And there are only just a few casualties on each side. For instance, Procopius mentions an incident where some Roman cavalry capture uh, seven dead bodies of Persian cavalry. So we're talking about, you know, capturing seven dead bodies here, seven dead bodies there, etc. There's not a lot of heavy-duty fighting. Now, what there is is a series of incidents where Persian warriors come out and demand single combat with individual Byzantines. And a Byzantine warrior named Andreas takes up the challenge. Andreas, according to the story, is a wrestling school instructor, and he ends up killing two Persians in single combat. And this takes up you know, several paragraphs of Procopius's account of the battle. Now, to some people, this may not be terribly interesting, right? It doesn't affect the outcome. It doesn't affect anything that happens today. And sure, it doesn't do so directly, but it is illustrative. Think about this. You have two people separating out from their armies and engaging in single combat. That is not something that you see in the Roman world, right? The Romans and some Germanic tribe go to war. You do not see a Roman champion and a Germanic champion coming out and fighting each other one-on-one. But all of a sudden now, with the Byzantines and the Persians, you see this again. You don't see that in the Roman era. You know where you see it? In the more ancient era, where the ancient Greeks were fighting the Persians. You see it in Herodotus, Thucydides, Xenophon, these ancient writers talking about an even older time before the Roman Empire even existed. And back then, individual warriors came out and fought each other one-on-one. Lo and behold, immediately upon the fall of this Western Roman Empire, these Eastern Roman warriors, these Byzantines, are once again engaging 
in these Greek practices that had for so long remained dormant. At the end of the day, both sides retire, and the Roman troops, the Byzantine troops, on the fortress walls cheer as if they've won a great victory. But in fact, this is really just the prelude to the battle. The next day, there is no fighting, but 10,000 additional Persian troops arrive. Now, Procopius, the historian we have from this battle, does not tell us what the composition of this army is, right? Are the Persians mostly pikemen? Are they mostly archers? Are they mostly cavalry? We don't know. Uh, but what Procopius does say is that Belisarius sends a letter to the Persians offering peace. Now, again, modern historians have varying interpretations of this, right? You read one historian, they'll say that Belisarius knew he was outnumbered two to one, right? 50,000 to 25,000, and was trying to negotiate rather than risk losing the battle. Then you'll find other historians who say, well, Belisarius was a devout Christian, and he wasn't going to go to battle without offering peace. And again, without being there, it's hard to say. Personally, I favor the first version because, hey, he was outnumbered two to one, and this is a pretty big deal. Regardless, the Persian general refuses his offer, and the Persian general, in his note, says that the Romans are obviously using these negotiations to cheat the Persians, right? They're just buying for time until they can move more armies into place. And Belisarius says, Oh, excellent Moranus, Moranus being the Persian title at the time for a general. Oh, excellent Moranus. It is not fitting in all things to depend upon boasting nor to lay upon one's neighbors reproaches which are justified on no ground whatever. But since you are eager for deeds of war, we shall array ourselves against you, with the help of God, who will, we know, support us in the danger, being moved by the peaceful inclination of the Romans, but rebuking the boastfulness of the Persians and your decision to resist us when we invite you to peace. And... We shall array ourselves against you, having prepared for the conflict by fastening the letters written by each of us on the top of our banners. Now, that part about fastening the letters on top of the banners, it's a little bit confusing, right? We're not quite sure what types of letters they were putting on their war banners, probably prayers or letters to home, but the rest of what Belisarius says is pretty recognizable, right? He's an old-school religious warrior, and he says God is on our side, and if you don't surrender, God will assist us in crushing you. And the Persian general is not to be outdone in this regard. He sends back a response, and he says, Neither are we entering upon the war without our gods. 
and with their help we shall come before you. And I expect that on the morrow they will bring the Persians into Darus. But let the bath and lunch be in readiness for me within the fortifications. So rather than make peace, the Persian general just says, hey, you've got your god, we've got our gods, and by the way, I've got more guys, so have some food and a fresh bath for me ready in the city because I'm going to take it. Well, ultimately, the Persians would not take the city. The next day dawned and quickly grew very hot. Now, they didn't have mercury thermometers in those days, but modern historians tell us that the temperatures were as hot as 110 or 115 degrees Fahrenheit. For everybody from outside the U.S., that is 43 to 46 Celsius. It's a hot day, and it's exceptionally hot if you're wearing heavy metal armor. And I don't know, I've never been a horse but one must imagine that if you're one of these thousands of horses on the battlefield with somebody wearing hot metal armor sitting on your back, you're probably not too comfortable either. And the battle opens tentatively, right? This is not unusual either in ancient or modern battles, right? Both sides need time to deploy, uh, so both sides take that time to deploy. And as it turns out, the actual fighting doesn't begin till about noon. And around that time, there is an exchange of arrows. Again, this is fairly standard for ancient warfare, right? What do you do before you send in the heavy-hitting infantry? You launch some arrows at the enemy to soften them up. And both the Persians and the Byzantines do this. Uh, Procopius describes the arrows as blocking out the sky, right? It's like that movie, The 300. Gee, again, Greeks versus Persians, right? But it's the same thing again in the 6th century AD. These arrows are blocking out the sun. They are flying so thick. And according to Procopius, the Persians actually have more archers on the battlefield. Their arrows are more numerous, but... The wind favors the Romans. In other words, the Persian arrows do not actually travel far enough to inflict significant damage on the Byzantine lines. Uh, the exact number of casualties in this initial exchange is not known. The general consensus is that it was low on both sides. Seems like the Persians may have experienced a few more casualties despite the fact that there were fewer Byzantine archers, just because the wind was blowing the right direction, but we don't know that. Regardless, the Persians move ahead attacking, right? They have superior numbers. The Romans, the Byzantines, have a fortified position, so it makes sense that the Persians are going to be the ones to go on the offensive. And they attack the Byzantine left flank. In response to the initial attack, the Hunnic cavalry and Byzantine infantry on the left flank retreats. 
They can't stand up to the superior numbers, but if you remember, I mentioned that there was some Germanic cavalry, right? Some Herulians. Uh, these barbarians are positioned way out to the left behind an embankment, and while these Persian troops are moving in, smashing into the Byzantines and driving them back and focused on pursuing them, these Germanic cavalry charge and smash into the Persian rear. Now, the Persian left flank is not entirely enveloped. These troops manage to escape. Nonetheless, because they've been surrounded like that, they have to withdraw. So there's no pressure left on the Byzantine left when the Persians attack the Byzantine right flank. Now, against this Byzantine right flank, which again is mostly cavalry, right? Hunnic cavalry. The Persians deploy the immortals. This isn't a group of elite heavy infantry that has been around since at least the time of Herodotus, right? That's the time we first hear of them, the 3rd century BC. And by then, they're already well known for being an exceptionally tough heavy infantry. In fact, the immortals continue in some form or another way up to the Iranian Revolution of 1979, right? If you're thinking about modern militaries and you're thinking of elite units, you're thinking of the French Foreign Legion or the U.S. 101st Airborne. And those are tough units, right? They have had military successes where other units would have completely failed. But neither of those units has been around for more than a few decades. I mean, even the Foreign Legion, older than the 101st Airborne, but still not older than the 1800s. And yet, here we have the Persian Immortals around for millennia. Friends, that's an elite unit. That is the kind of unit that does not just get written about in history books, but becomes legendary thereby. And in this battle, Belisarius's Bucellarii, right, these versatile heavy cavalry, are called in from their reserve position to punch back on the immortals as the Byzantine right flank is being crushed. The Bucellarii counterattack and drive them from the field, and the Persian army retreats. This may not be the greatest victory in military history, but it's a win against two-to-one odds. And more to the point, it's a proof of concept that these Bucellarii can work, right? Prior to this battle, Everything they've done has been in exercises, right? It's all been theoretical. And all of a sudden, the Byzantines have seen in practice that the Bucellarii can perform just as well as they can on paper. Belisarius grows perhaps a little overconfident and pursues, and he's defeated by the Persians at the Battle of Callinicum. 
And the difference in this battle seems to be that the wind this time was against the Byzantines. So instead of inflicting some losses prior to the battle, the Byzantines receive losses prior to the battle, and that's the difference in the outcome. Regardless, Belisarius fights bravely in this battle. We're told that he fights on foot amongst his infantry until nightfall when they are able to safely retreat. And moreover, he inflicts enough casualties that the Persian victory is a Pyrrhic one, right? It's almost not worth winning because they lost so many troops in the process. Because the Persians are losing so many troops, Justinian is ultimately able to sue for peace. Negotiations proceed forward. And Justinian's goal at this time is to make peace with the Persians at virtually any cost, right? He has, at least on paper, a claim to the Western Empire. After all, no matter how far removed, he is the successor of the Emperor Zeno. He does hold the Western Imperial seals, and he does very much want to regain the entire Western half of the Mediterranean. But to do that, he first has to make peace with the Persians. That's why he's willing to do pretty much anything. And as negotiations with the Persians are going on, Justinian is faced with a crisis. See, as I mentioned in passing in the past couple episodes, chariot teams were kind of a big deal in the Byzantine Empire in this time period, right? You can compare it to NFL football in the USA. You can compare it to association football in Europe. Uh, for my American friends, that's what we call soccer. Either way, it was a big deal, and people who were successful chariot racers were major celebrities, right? Again, think of, like, I don't know, Peyton Manning or David Beckham today, right? Major celebrities. And at this time, there is a riot between the fans of two teams, and... Somehow some of the players got involved and one charioteer from both major teams, the blue team and the green team, were scheduled to be executed for murder. And the people riot, again, fans of both teams. Justinian commutes the sentences of the two charioteers, but at this point... The riots have a momentum of their own, right? The people want redress for something, so they turn their anger on two of his tax officials, which have been supposedly uh, overcharging the people of Constantinople. I should point out that it is distinctly possible that that is, is actually true. They may actually have been overcharged, but regardless... The fans of both teams rioted, and they gathered together in a space called the Hippodrome. 
this is a giant building now mostly destroyed that was the public gathering place for the people of Constantinople. It was similar in scale and design to the Circus Maximus in Rome. So if you want to picture something, picture that. This giant marble stadium with tens of thousands of people in them gathering. And inside of this arena, as the charioteers gather for the next race, both sides begin chanting the word Nika. Now, Nika means victory. And what's significant is that both the blue and the green chariot team fans are cheering for victory while rioting against the emperor. This is not good. But Justinian is smart, and he figures out a way to break these riots into a more manageable situation. And what he does is he sends a messenger into the Hippodrome to remind the fans of the blue team that he has always been a blue team fan. And the messenger also brings money to compensate their team for injuries sustained and the mob disperses. This is still tough to map onto modern society. Right? I mean, for instance, my American friends, myself included, many of us are fanatics for NFL football. Right? What my European friends or anybody really from outside the U.S. would call American football, right? We're fanatics for that game. And we live in times, dare I say, of heightened political tension. Even so, I can't picture fans of the New England Patriots rioting after a game against the Philadelphia Eagles and these riots turning political and overthrowing the government. But that just seems a little bit far-fetched by modern standards even in these bizarre times we live, you still can't really picture something that weird. But the Romans could, and Justinian took countermeasures. And despite the fact that he had successfully convinced the blue team supporters to leave the stadium, the green team supporters remained. And the mob remained a serious threat, and many senators were suggesting that the government should leave Constantinople altogether. And this is a moment where the Empress Theodora shines, and she gives a speech that's recounted by the historian Procopius. Again, the guy who was present at the Battle of Dara, well, he was probably present here, too. And here's what he says Theodora said to the Senate. She said, My lords, the present occasion is too serious to allow me to follow the convention that a woman should not speak in a man's council. Those whose interests are threatened by extreme danger should think only of the wisest course of action, not of conventions. In my opinion, 
Flight is not the right course, even if it should bring us to safety. It is impossible for a person, having been born into this world, not to die. But for one who has reigned, it is intolerable to be a fugitive. May I never be deprived of this purple robe, and may I never see the day when those who meet me do not call me empress. If you wish to save yourself, my lord, there is no difficulty. We are rich. Over there is the sea, and yonder there are ships. Yet reflect for a moment whether, once you have escaped to a place of security, you would not gladly exchange such safety for death. As for me, I agree with the adage that the royal purple is the noblest shroud. And by that, Theodora means a burial shroud. Right? She would rather die than flee the city. And Justinian and the majority of senators agree to remain in Constantinople. At this point, Justinian sends in his troops, and the troops, commanded, of course, by Belisarius, massacre the supporters of the Greens. In fact, over 30,000 people are killed. 30,000 citizens of the Byzantine Empire are killed by the army in response to a riot. And with these riots resolved, Justinian resolves that he is going to move ahead with his life's purpose of restoring the empire, no matter what the cost, and he offers to pay the Persians tribute in exchange for peace. They accept, and now, finally, he is free to turn to the West. Now, to be clear, even as he was trying to reconquer the lost western half of the empire, Justinian still focused somewhat on culture. For instance, he orders the Hagia Sophia to be rebuilt. The Hagia Sophia being the Basilica of Holy Wisdom that had been burned down during these riots over the charioteers. And when the Hagia Sophia is ultimately rebuilt, it becomes one of the great wonders of the modern world, right? When the Ottomans conquered Constantinople, they didn't knock it down. They put minarets on it and turned it into a mosque, right? Because it was such an iconic building. You didn't destroy something like this. Well, Justinian built it. And also, again, in order to maintain this focus on the West, Justinian pays tribute to some other neighbors, including Avar barbarians. They'll become a little bit more important later. Now, remember how I mentioned earlier that that peaceful Vandal Kingdom would not be such a desirable place to live for long? Well, here you have it. Justinian trumps up a war against them during negotiations, as a matter of fact. The Vandal King refers to the House of Geyseric. Right? He asserts his authority over this land because he's descended from a previous leader. Now, this is not terribly notable in and of itself, 
as you're going to see, the Vandals are quickly ousted from North Africa, but this appeal to dynastic role is something you'll see again and again throughout not just Europe, but the rest of the Mediterranean over the intervening centuries. Regardless, when negotiations break down, Justinian sails a fleet to attack the Vandal Kingdom, and by Justinian, of course, I mean Belisarius, because he's the one doing all the major military leadership in this time. And in 532, his fleet lands in Sicily. If you can picture Sicily, this little island, right? It, the boot of Italy sticks down into the Mediterranean. It's sort of kicking Sicily away like a ball. And uh, the Byzantine fleet lands in Sicily, and Belisarius sends out scout ships to look for the Vandal fleet. The reason being that these Byzantine ships are mostly transports. They don't actually have that much of a navy. And if they were to encounter the Vandal war fleet at sea, the Vandal ships would probably sink most of their transports. They would be sitting ducks. So Belisarius is cautious, and he sends out these scouts. And as it turns out, the Vandals are involved putting down a rebellion against them in Sardinia. So Belisarius takes advantage quickly, moves his fleet to modern-day Tunisia, right the coast of North Africa, and establishes a camp in early September. Some of the local uh, garrison commanders come to meet with him. He says he will only meet with the Vandal King Gelimer personally. And while Gelimer is still out of the area, he defeats the Vandal garrison of Carthage, conquers the city, and actually begins rebuilding the fortification walls. What he doesn't do is sack the city. This is important, right? Justinian has announced what he calls the Renovatio Imperii, right? Restoration of the empire. This is a slogan, right? Built Ford tough, that kind of slogan. And as part of the restoration of the empire... Justinian does not want to sack the cities he's just conquered. This can become problematic. For instance, the armies are not making a ton of money for war. And a lot of the troops are Hunnic mercenaries. So under ordinary circumstances, you would simply pay them. Under extraordinary circumstances, you would give them a share of the loot when they conquered a city. If you can't do either of those things, what do you do? Well, Gelimer, this Vandal leader, starts to wonder that and bribes Belisarius's Hunnic mercenaries. Now, Belisarius figures this out and outbids them. But he realizes that he's in a losing fight, right? He's only going to get limited funds from the Empire, whereas Gelimer is fighting for his life. Right? Gelimer is the Vandal King. If he loses, he has no kingdom. 
So if Belisarius is going to maintain the loyalty of these mercenaries, he has to attack immediately, and he does. And in December of 532, rather than wait for spring, Belisarius attacks Gallimer's army. Now, this is another instance of Belisarius being outnumbered. In this case, the Vandal army numbers about 50,000. The Byzantines, even with their Hunnic allies, only number about 10,000. But Belisarius is inexplicably able to defeat Gelimer's troops in detail. So both armies are advancing on each other, and as armies do in this time, both armies have a few light cavalry units out in front to screen, right? They're, they're scouts. And Gelimer's cavalry spots Belisarius's cavalry. Both spout each other. But while Belisarius's cavalry rushes back to tell the main army that they've spotted Gelimer's units, Gelimer's cavalry stops to eat lunch. This is inexplicable, but it's one of those things that just happens. And as it happens, Belisarius's cavalry have a chance not only to deploy, but to reinforce with 600 of the Bucellarii, again, these elite cavalry. And when they meet the Vandal cavalry at midday, when they charge in on these Vandals, still eating their lunch, the Vandals have to retreat. And the problem for the Vandals, then, is not their losses, right? The, the losses in terms of people are pretty minimal. But they're driven back while the Byzantine cavalry is still deploying. They have no intelligence on the Byzantine positions, and this frightens their other people. So as the Vandal cavalry flees, other units also begin to flee, right? The infantry the reserve cavalry, the other people who were following in the rest of the Vandal army. And to be fair, a lot of this may simply be because the Vandals had no idea how small the Byzantine army really was, right? All they saw were advanced scouting elements. For all they knew, this Byzantine army was 50,000 or 100,000 strong themselves. It certainly would not make sense for the Byzantines to attack with only 10,000 men, but they did, and Gelimer and his troops completely flee the area. Gelimer and his personal guard retreat back to the Vandal camp, where the Byzantines catch up to them and start looting, and Gelimer is ultimately captured shortly afterwards. Now, there are some interesting parallels between this battle and the Battle of Dara. Right? How does Belisarius win? Better scouting, better reconnaissance, and defeating the enemies in detail, right? I mean, imagine if the Persians had charged on both flanks at the same time at Dara. You might have had a different outcome. But regardless, Belisarius is pretty much able to defeat any enemy that's thrown against him. And unfortunately, this scares Justinian. 
Justinian is worried about anyone who might pose a military threat to him. So he never sends Belisarius into the field with more units than Byzantium itself can field. In other words, if Belisarius is going to strike back against the Byzantine Empire, he's going to be striking against a superior force. But this doesn't really make sense. I mean, Belisarius as we will see, is sent out again and again against superior numbers and conquerors. If he wanted to take the Byzantine throne, he could. Right? It wouldn't matter if Justinian had two or even three times as many people as he had. Belisarius was a bona fide military genius. So why is Justinian doing this? In many respects, it may just be ordinary human jealousy. Let's see what Procopius says. Here's what he writes in his Secret Histories, right? The book that was only to be published after Justinian's death. Procopius says, That Justinian was not a man, but a demon in human shape, as I have already said, may be abundantly proved by considering the enormity of the evils which he inflicted upon mankind, for the power of the acting cause is manifested in the excessive atrocity of his actions. I think that God alone could accurately reckon the number of those who were destroyed by him. And it would be easier for a man to count the grains of sand on the seashore than the number of his victims. Considering generally the extent of country which was depopulated by him, I assert that more than two millions of people perished. He so devastated the vast tract of Libya that a traveler during a long journey considered it a remarkable thing to meet a single man. And yet there were 80,000 vandals who bore arms, besides women, children, and servants without number. He means there were 80,000 plus women, children, and servants before the Roman invasion, right? The Byzantines really did a number on the vandals. And Procopius goes on. In addition to these... Who amongst men could enumerate the ancient inhabitants who dwelt in the cities, tilled the land, and traded on the coast, of whom I myself have seen vast numbers with my own eyes? The natives of Mauritania were even still more numerous, and they were all exterminated together with their wives and children. This country also proved the tomb of numbers of Roman soldiers and of their auxiliaries from Byzantium. Therefore, if one were to assert that five millions perished in that country, I do not feel sure that, that he would not underestimate the number. The reason of this was that Justinian, immediately after the defeat of the Vandals, did not take measures to strengthen his hold upon the country, and showed no anxiety to protect his interests by securing the goodwill of his subjects but immediately recalled Belisarius on a charge of aspiring to royal power, which by no means would have suited him, in order that he might manage the affairs of the country at his own discretion, and ravage and plunder the whole of Libya. 
He sent commissioners to value the province and imposed new and most harsh taxes upon the inhabitants. He seized the best and most fertile estates and prohibited the Arians from exercising the rights of their religion. He was dilatory in keeping his army well supplied and in an effective condition, while in other respects he was a severe martinet, so that disturbances arose which ended in great loss. He was unable to abide by what was established, but was by nature prone to overthrow everything into a state of confusion and disturbance. This is a good summary of Justinian's role. He was trying to restore the Roman Empire, but he was following these Eastern rules, these rules of tribute and conquest, that didn't jive with the old Roman values of assimilation. And moreover, because he was always trying to squeeze as much money as he could out of the provinces, he was constantly having to clean up revolts. Now, this was exacerbated by the fact that he himself did not trust Belisarius. To avoid reading off 20 years of history in excruciating detail and occupying half a dozen hours of your time, let me summarize the list of times Belisarius was sent out to conquer a territory and was ultimately recalled either because the job was halfway done and it was good enough, or because Justinian was jealous. And this list comes from Paul K. Davis's excellent book, 100 Decisive Battles. Here's a summary. In 529 to 531, Belisarius defeated the Persian Empire armies and was recalled to lead an invasion of Africa. 533 to 535, defeated Vandals, recalled because of jealousy. 535 to 536, led invasion of Sicily and Italy, recalled to suppress rebellion in Africa. 536 to 541, campaigned against Goths in Italy, so impressing them that they offered him the position of emperor in the West, which he refused recalled to fight against the Persians. 542 to 544, defeated Persians, recalled to command in Italy. 544 to 549, returned to Italy to restore Byzantine authority, replaced by Narsus in 551. 549 to 554, retired in Constantinople. 554, called out of retirement to reconquer southern Spain for Byzantines, retired again. 559, called out of retirement to defend Constantinople with less than 1,000 men against 7,000 invading Bulgars, was victorious and retired for the final time. That is quite the resume, and during that time of Belisarius's career, the Eastern Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, suffered no serious threat. And during this time, they did successfully reconquer most of the old Roman Empire. Justinian 
by the end of his reign, ruled over pretty much everything that the old Romans ruled over. The exceptions being, of course, Britannia, right? Britain is totally lost. Uh, and some of Hispania, which is ruled by the Visigoths, as well as this Frankish kingdom in Gaul. This is important. These Franks at this point are a couple generations removed from Clovis. Right? They are not a unified kingdom anymore, but they have enough Frankish identity that they're not really interested in being Roman anymore. And interestingly, despite the incredible odds against which Belisarius would fight at many points, Justinian never even tries to retake these Frankish lands. It's almost an acknowledgement that this nationalistic identity is there to stay. Now, Justinian spent a lot of money on these conquests, and he wasn't a foolish man. He understood that all of these conquests would be expensive. What he expected was to restore that Roman Empire economic engine I was talking about, right? If you own the Mediterranean, you own all the trade. You can make a lot of money off of tariffs and other taxes to pay for your armies and all your other expenses. Unfortunately, this economic growth doesn't happen. And it's nothing that Justinian or Belisarius or anybody else could have predicted. It's a flat-out disease. It is what we call now the plague of Justinian. This disease first shows up in Egypt in 541. And it manifests in boils on the people's bodies, which sometimes burst disgustingly. And for that reason, as well as epidemiological reasons, most modern physicians think that this plague of Justinian is the first incarnation of the Black Death. Right, This is the bubonic plague. It's just a few centuries early, and it doesn't have the same name. But whatever you call it, this plague of Justinian spreads from Egypt throughout the rest of the Mediterranean, and within a generation, it kills 20% of the population. That's one in five people. Right now, we live in times today where there is a disease going around, and it kills something like 2% of the people who get it, right? Imagine a disease that's 10 times as deadly, right? Imagine the trauma that inflicts on a society. And obviously, of course, there are human deaths, right? One in five people, that's a lot of people. But there are also economic costs, right? I mean, look at what COVID, this comparatively mild disease, has done to our economy today. And now imagine an ancient population being hit by a disease so much more dangerous, and they don't even have the knowledge we have today, right? They don't understand germ theory. They don't know 
where the disease comes from, how it spreads. It must seem like this terrifying curse that's come after all of this war and everything else. And during this time, during the 540s, Justinian also experiences a personal loss. Theodora dies of cancer in the year 548. We think it's cancer anyway. Can never be quite sure of these things in the ancient world. But regardless of how she dies, she dies relatively young, and Justinian is heartbroken. And if you look at the rest of his reign, it's obvious that he does not have this same energy. Right? We called him the man who never sleeps. Well, after Theodora's death, he starts to take a nap every now and then. And... Theodora remains to this day one of the most famous women of the pre-modern world and one of the earliest women to ever be depicted in history. If you happen to go to Ravenna, Italy, in the Basilica of San Vitale, there is a mural of her right alongside Justinian's. Alternatively, you can just look it up online. That's a little bit cheaper than going to Italy. Regardless, Belisarius also does not get out of everything totally cleanly. In the year 562, he is accused by some senators of plotting to overthrow Justinian. Now this, again, seems kind of ridiculous, but we know Justinian was a little bit paranoid that way. Even so, Justinian recognizes Belisarius' value and pardons him. And Justinian dies a few years later, in the year 565. He leaves a massive legacy, right? On paper, it looks like he's made massive gains, right? He's conquered almost all of the former Roman Empire and incorporated it into Rome 2.0, Byzantium. He controls almost the entire Mediterranean and Black Sea coasts. But this economy that he so badly needed to get going didn't get going because of the plague. And now the empire he leaves behind is running a budget deficit. And as the icing on the cake, Belisarius dies just a few months later. So Justinian's heir, Justin II, inherits a budget deficit and no longer has Belisarius's military genius to fall back on. And with the treasury rapidly drying up, Justin II has no choice but to suspend those payments that the Byzantines were making to the Persians and the Avars. This leads to yet another war with the Persians and the Avars, and while Justin's armies are able to successfully fight them off, while he's busy over there, the Lombards, these other barbarians, reconquer most of Italy, right? Justinian took it from them, now they're taking it back. Uh, Justin II dies in the year 574, after a relatively short reign. 
and Tiberius II takes over. But he only rules for four years, doesn't really do much, ends up dying of food poisoning. And the last emperor of the Justinian dynasty, Maurice, rules from 578 all the way to 602. Uh, again, he more or less retains the borders. He's mostly famous because he pushed back yet another new group of barbarians called the Slavs. Right? We talk about Slavic people today. Uh, they live in uh, right, Russia, Poland, parts of the Balkans, right? Well, this is where they first appear in history, much like many of these other people first appear in history coming out of these Eurasian steppes. They're going to have to wait a while to live in the Balkans, though, because this time Maurice fights them back. But he's not very popular with the army. And this is because he deals with budgetary shortfalls by reducing their pay. Ultimately, this makes him very unpopular, and he is deposed when the Green Chariot faction launches a revolt and installs their own emperor on the throne. Yes, you heard that right. A chariot team, basically a professional sports team, just installed a new emperor on the Byzantine throne. So what we're left with is a Mediterranean that's basically split between this new Frankish kingdom, right, and a Byzantine empire that controls a ton of territory but is basically a paper tiger. Remember, the economy's not doing well, both due to the plague and due to depopulation in these wars, right? Procopius told us about those millions of people that Justinian killed in North Africa. Well, the empire sure could have used those people doing business and paying taxes in these trying times. As it happens, most parts of the empire, while... They're officially united, are starting to look inward. Local culture is dominating everywhere. And about the only thing really tying the Mediterranean together at this point is Christianity, right? They have this shared religion. That at least provides certain ground rules, and even diplomatic back channels, right? If there's a dispute, well, we can, we can talk to the Pope, right? If nothing else, both sides each have a local bishop who talks to the Pope, right? There's always that back channel open between these people. Now, other than that, no one has seen the Mediterranean Basin this fragmented since the Punic Wars, since like the 200s BC. And into this universe, there will now come yet another disruptive force. And what I'm talking about, of course, is that third great Abrahamic faith, Islam, which is about to be born on the Arabian Peninsula. This would lead to a 
massive shakeup of the Mediterranean that in most ways shapes how we see that part of the world today. And that's why it's relevant.